1 Kings chapter 3. As we continue our study through 1 Kings together, we saw as we came to the end of chapter 2 together, in fact, the last phrase of the last verse of chapter 2, there it told us, thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So at this point, we've now made the transition King David, this incredible king of Israel who we watched throughout uh, the history of a period of time reigning over Israel, David having a 40-year reign himself, has now passed off the scene. His son Solomon is God's chosen successor, and so Solomon has now come to power. We saw some initial things that he did as far as some changes in the administration, dealing with some problematic people and beginning to take some of this responsibility on as the new king of Israel. And again, remember, as we're going through these things together, just to bring to your attention, at this point in time, Remember, Solomon sort of kind of became a co-regent with his father, David, uh, for a short period of time before David's death, while his health was declining. Uh, At that time, Solomon historically, we believe, was probably somewhere between the age range of maybe around potentially as young as 15, maybe up to around 19, 20 years old. So uh, with that being said, and where we have Solomon now, It's very likely, again, as Solomon takes the throne and is the official king now, independently ruling as the king of Israel, as David, his father, has died. It's very likely at this time period, as we're looking at these things in the early reign of Solomon's life, he's maybe somewhere around 18 years old, 19 years old, maybe 20 years old. So, again, taking into consideration the responsibility that has just come upon him, taking into consideration as well as we look at the events in these chapters, that these are things that are taking place between a young man and his God in his late teens, early 20s. You know, God help us to think that uh, our youth don't matter and that young people and young adults don't matter because uh, Solomon steps in as a young man to this huge, incredible responsibility and phenomenal things are happening between this young man and his God. Uh, In his relationship with the Lord, things that God's revealing to him, experiences that he's having. So keep that in your mind as we're going through these things. So chapter 3 begins to tell us about some of his experiences as the new king of Israel and as a young adult man taking on this responsibility. It says, chapter 3, verse 1, Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he married Pharaoh's daughter. And then he brought her to the city of David, which is, of course, again, a reference to Jerusalem, until the time that he had finished building his own house, that is his palace. We'll read more of that as events unfold in 1 Kings. And also the house of the Lord, that is the construction of the temple, which we'll read about in this book as well. So this is sort of a a summary statement here of some events that will still unfold yet, as well as the wall all around Jerusalem. So at this point now in verse 1, we're told of this political alliance, this treaty that's made between Solomon, the king of Israel, with Pharaoh, the supreme ruler of Egypt. And notice, again, this would be very important, first of all, for political reasons. This would grant opportunity for Egypt as they would have much interest going north and south in the trade routes through Israel, being able to utilize that territory and fulfill their uh, trade expeditions and merchant uh, activity and so forth, going north and south through the land freely without any hindrances. This would also be of value and of importance to Israel uh, as King Solomon now makes this decision to enter into the treaty because this would mean that they would probably have peaceful borders with their neighbor to the south and wouldn't have concerns of any issues or any old problematic things that could exist. Remember at one time the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt pretty harshly for a number of, of years that were there. So this alliance is made now politically between these two nations and notice in connection to this it says that Solomon as he made this treaty with Pharaoh king of Egypt also married Pharaoh's daughter 
Now, understand, this wasn't just something, well, as he was making this peace treaty, that Pharaoh's daughter kind of caught his eye, and wow, she's pretty attractive. And as they're doing negotiations and trips, he fell in love with Pharaoh's daughter, and as a result of that, ultimately, they got married. No doubt, this is indicating, as was very common in the day, this was predominantly a marriage that was based on a political alliance. This was very, very common in those cultures and in that day of, of the ancient uh, activities of making alliances and treaties where a lot of times marriages were in direct connection to political alliances. Now, again, think about that. That would make absolute perfect sense because if your daughter is married to someone, so if your daughter, uh, the Pharaoh now has a daughter that lives in Israel and he's married, uh, she's married to the king of Israel, chances are more than likely you're probably not going to attack Israel. If your daughter lives with the king there, you're probably not going to launch a full-scale military attack, make her life miserable, potentially make her be at risk or her life in jeopardy, as well as the fact if your daughter is married to the king of Israel and she's still your daughter, chances are pretty good you're probably going to have decent relations. And if you want to have any idea or intel what's going on in Israel... You might just want to correspond with your daughter. So it worked both ways. It was very beneficial. So a lot of times, uh, political alliances were sealed with marriages, and the marriages really were a lot more political than they were romantic. Uh, and ultimately, we know Solomon has a real weakness for women, and this will be one of ultimately a thousand wives, the Bible tells us, that Solomon will accumulate. So again, you have to understand, some of these wives were strictly nothing other than political allegiances that were being made more than they were just uh, falling in love and romantic uh, type attractions that were taking place. And this is probably a reference to one of those marriages early on. So at this point now, the daughter of Pharaoh is married to Solomon. He brings her into Jerusalem while this process of building his house and the Lord's house and the wall was being built. Verse 2 says, And meanwhile the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now, again, we're at a unique period of time historically. Remember, Deuteronomy 12, God had encouraged the people not to engage in the worship practices of the high places and that ultimately there would be a set place, a designated spot, Jerusalem will be that permanent location, where the temple, the house of the Lord, will be built and that they were only to worship there according to the ways of Yahweh God in the temple with the proper protocol of how God wanted them to worship a prescribed way and they were to assemble in Jerusalem. So because of that, they weren't to be engaged in worshiping in the high places. Now, typically, if you've ever been uh, to Israel or if you've seen perhaps footage, pictures or videos or whatever, you notice that territory there is, is a very hilly country. And so there are a lot of different locations where you can go up onto elevation. And it was very common, uh, a lot of the worship practices, pagan deities, everything, that they would set up altars in high places. And their mentality, logically, was just, well, the higher you are, the closer you are to your God, whoever your God may be. So it was a very common practice to worship on the high places, to build altars there. But a lot of the worship activity that went on the high places among the Canaanite people in that land, a lot of it was worship to pagan deities, to foreign gods. And so God warned his people not to participate in those things. However, what the Bible is revealing to us is this was a unique time in history where again, the temple, the permanent temple was not yet built. That will happen in Jerusalem as we see under the leadership and oversight of Solomon. He's the man tasked by God to build the permanent temple structure that will be there in Jerusalem. But at that time, this was not yet built. So in some ways, the people of Israel gravitated toward some of the same cultural ideas of going to the higher locations, the hills, the mountain elevations, as a time of worship. Uh, again, this is a time, remember, where it seems that the uh, 
the the uh, altar itself and the, the uh, ark was brought to Jerusalem under David's leadership, but yet there were still other locations where there was worship going on at some of the high places and even the tabernacle structure, the tent-like structure that was used in the wilderness is still in the area of Gibeon. And that's what's being described here for us in these verses, sort of a unique time. It says, verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon, Second Chronicles chapter 1, tells us that for a time the tabernacle of the Lord, the tent, even though uh, the... Uh, ark was in Jerusalem that the tabernacle itself was still in the area of Gibeon so this is probably why we see Solomon going there it seems worship was happening both in Gibeon as well as the fact that the ark itself was there in Jerusalem before the temple was built so Solomon goes to Gibeon to sacrifice there for that was the great high place it was a special place because the tabernacle was still there and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar so a little bit of the worship life being described here we read a few things verse 3 tells us about Solomon at this point in his life again his heart being sensitive to God it says Solomon loved the Lord beautiful description beautiful to see not only a, a king and a national leader but more than that again a young man 18 19 20 years old and it says that he loved the Lord. And because he loved the Lord, notice his love translated into obedience. It was outwardly evidenced. He didn't just express with his words, I love the Lord, and yet live in contradiction to that. And sadly, just like people can say in relationships, I love you, and then they live in contradiction of that, and they don't prove that out by the way that they live in their relationship to someone they say they love. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments that that biblical love real love is expressed through obedience it's demonstrated just like god demonstrates his love for us and solomon's love was a a genuine love for the lord because notice verse 3 it says he was walking in the statutes of his father uh, david the idea is that he was walking in accordance with what the word of god said he was honoring god living obediently to the lord he had a love for the lord and so he lived for the lord and again, what a beautiful thing. Not only to see any man or a political leader that's genuine with love for God. God, give us more of those in our culture, in our nation, supreme leaders who actually love the Lord and live according to the word of God. But how beautiful to see this young man. Again, such a love for the Lord that he walks in obedience to pleasing the Lord, living for him. And as well, regarding his worship, look what it says there uh, regarding his worship, verse 4, that the king went to Gibeon where the tabernacle, as I said, was at at that time to sacrifice for that was the great high place. And look at this, verse 4, Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings to the Lord there as an act of worship on the altar. A thousand burnt offerings. Now, a couple things here. First of all, remember the burnt offering was the unique offering whereby the entire animal being offered on the altar, the whole part of the animal was completely consumed in the fire upon the altar. There were peace offerings, there were sin offerings, there were burnt offerings. Typically with the peace offering or the sin offering, a portion of the animal was burned upon the fire and then another portion might have been given to the priest. Sometimes a portion was eaten by the worshiper. The idea was like you were having a communal meal with God and with the people of God. But the burnt offering was unique in that the entire animal was burnt or consumed in the fire. And it was intended to be an offering of consecration or dedication. The idea was when you gave a burnt offering, you were saying, God, I want everything, my entire life, I want it all to be consumed by you. I give everything to you, Lord. I don't, I don't want anything back for myself. I'm not holding anything back, Lord. I want to be fully consecrated to you, fully given over every part of me. And that was the idea behind a burnt offering. You were giving everything over to God and you were making an offering of dedication of yourself. And Solomon, it says here, doesn't just offer a burnt offering in the midst of his worship. It says that Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings. Again, keep in mind, they weren't offering like hamsters. 
I mean, these are, these are cattle, sheep and goats and oxen. I mean, these are huge animals. And, and imagine the labor alone involved in a thousand burnt offerings. Imagine the, uh, the cost. Again, their animals were like their tractors and their, their income. And, and they were, again, keep in mind, they, they were in a, you know, not only an agrarian society, but they typically raised animals and flocks and herds. And this was the way they took care of their fields and how they would sell and get meat and so forth. So this was a very, very costly offering unto the Lord. This was very time-consuming. How much time is he dedicating to give a thousand offerings, burnt offerings? How much time is involved in his worship? Looks to me like he's dedicating a lot of time to worship. A thousand burnt offerings. Imagine the bloodshed and all that's going into that. Again, but the idea here is love has no cost. When you genuinely love Love gives, love sacrifices, and you can't put a cost on love. I mean, I remember to this, to this day, when, you know, I'm very more budget-oriented type person by nature, and I say frugal. Some in my family say cheap. I say frugal still. Uh, but I remember even as a young man, I, I got engaged when I was 19 years old, married when I was 20. But even at that point in time, I remember I had a set idea in my mind exactly how much I was going to spend on, on the engagement ring for my wife. And, and I just, you know, I kind of had all that. Okay, I'm, this is exactly what I'm going to spend and so on and so forth and kind of had that money set aside. You know, sure enough, I went to the Littman jewelry store and when I saw what I wanted and I thought, man, that was way more than I was going to spend. <laughs> But I love that girl so stinking much. All of a sudden, the cost didn't matter anymore. It was way more than I planned on spending. But honestly, the love compelled me to say, the cost doesn't matter. It was the desire, the expression of love. And listen, in the same way, Paul says, the love of Christ compels me. And when you have a love for the Lord... What, what value does time have? What value does cost have? What value does commitment level have? When you love the Lord, I mean, you, you want to just give it all to the Lord. And here's Solomon, this beautiful demonstration. I love this picture of his worship, his devotion to God. And again, this beautiful image of a, of a young man doing this such a god give us more young men like that. I, I love to see you know young men young people who just fully giving it over to the lord willing to dedicate it all just such a, a beautiful thing to see nothing stirs my heart more than to see that or you know have a conversation about that a young man contact me you know just recently even this week saying hey i'm going to have some more time on my hands i want to read my bible some more where should i read i love that kind of stuff how awesome to see you know, young people and hear Solomon, all the things he could be doing and he, we see him worshiping the Lord, starting out really well. Ultimately, I know he doesn't do too well in the long haul, but boy, he certainly started out really on the right track at this point in time. And notice, this he was in such close communion with God. Now, this isn't sort of a, well, because you offered a thousand at that point, God's going to do something good for you. The point is here, verse 5, he was such close communion with God that it says, verse 5, look at it, there at Gibeon, probably this is in the midst of this worship or in the evening afterwards, that the Lord appeared to Solomon. Notice, in the midst of worship and devotion, blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus said, for they shall see God. He now has a dream by night. And God said to him, imagine this, mind blower, ask what shall I give you? Can you imagine the blank check? God reveals himself to Solomon in a dream. This is a legitimate dream. This wasn't a dream in the sense of, oh, that was just a dream. This, God was revealing himself in a dream. And in the Bible, we see Jacob having God speak to him in a dream. We see unbelievers, even God speaking to them in a dream. This is a legitimate way in which at times... God may choose to speak to individuals, to say things to them, to reveal things to them. I think we need to be careful. Some people, you know, have, you know, dreams and it's nothing other than just, you know, maybe eating some things they shouldn't have and staying up a little longer than they should. I guess some really crazy dreams. 
But this is a legitimate experience in the word of God. And God speaks to Solomon by appearing to him in a dream, communicates to him and says to Solomon, ask me, what should I do for you? What would you like me to do for you? He, he, he sees this young man, his heart loves the Lord. He's a worshiper. He's seeking the Lord and God is well pleased with this. And so I see that this is that God, A, is just being incredibly gracious because Solomon is not a perfect young man. This is just God being incredibly gracious because he's a gracious God. But it's also the fact that God sees a heart that's in a right place. And because that heart is in a right place, God's not afraid to say, ask, what do you want me to do for you? Because his heart was in the right place. God was not concerned he was going to ask for something wrong. So God lays it out before him and says, I see your heart. What shall I give you? Now, again, what would a, a typical person ask for at that point? Something for their own self-advantage. I mean, you can just imagine, run the gamut in your mind of what would you ask for? What would you have asked for when you were 18? What would you have asked for when you were then maybe 30? What would you have asked for at this stage of your life? And this point, you're, what would so many people ask for? And here's this opportunity laid out before him but I'll tell you, what a person asks in a situation like this shows a lot about who they are, where their heart's at, what matters most to them, what their priorities are, what they esteem as most important. It, it's a, a tremendous revelation of where somebody's at inwardly. So he hears, what shall I give you? And Solomon, notice, before he just jumps out and throws out a response, some questions, it's good to just sort of sit on and Solomon, rather than answer right away, first he just starts with a really grateful attitude. He expresses worship towards God and then he ultimately answers. But sometimes it's good to sort of pause, especially when God Almighty says, here's a one blank check, write whatever you want on it. Uh, it's good sometimes to really ponder that and think it through. So Solomon said, Lord, you have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked, he says, before you in truth in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. So he realized this is what matters to God, walking with God in an upright way, walking in accordance with his truth, wanting to honor the Lord. And he says, verse six, you have continued this great kindness for him and you've given him a son now to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father, David. But I am a little child. Now, not the idea of a six or an eight-year-old. The idea there in the language of the Hebrew is just literally, I, I'm young. I'm naive. I, in comparison to so many else around me, he's saying, I, I'm such a novice. I, I feel so childlike and childish in comparison to all these other older advisors. And I'm, again, I'm 18, 19, 20 years old. And I have this huge responsibility now. I, I feel so inexperienced, the ideas here. I feel so uh, inadequate, like a little child. I do not know, he says, how to go out or how to come in. He, I, I don't know what I'm doing here, God. Honestly, people think I do, but <laughs> you know I don't. I don't know how to go out and, and take care of things. I don't know how to come in. I don't know how to lead and guide these people like a, a shepherd and take care of them. And your servant, verse 8, is in the midst of your people. Notice that that was what he understood. Lord, these aren't my people. These are your people. This is, this is a huge responsibility, God. These are your people, the sheep of your hand, and, and you've given me a task to take care of them and to lead them, whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, here's his request, his answer to what do you want, ask. This is what he asked for, verse 9. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil right and wrong for who is able to judge this great people of yours so he says Lord there's such an inadequacy within me I, I don't have the wisdom or the knowledge or understanding to know how to make right decisions what's best and what would not be good and what's right and what's wrong and to discern the difference in times again the decisions that would have to be made the situations that would have to be addressed and handled all the things that come along with leadership and caring for people and responsibility 
And so he says, Lord, I just ask above all else, would you just give me an understanding heart? Would you give me supernatural understanding from your spirit? Would you give me the grace to be able to really just understand and grasp situations in front of me and make right decisions? Because those decisions are impacting and they have such great influence. Interesting, the Hebrew there literally, when he asked for an understanding heart, the Hebrew could literally be translated a hearing heart. Give me a hearing heart. What he's saying is, God, help me not to listen to the voices all around me, not even to listen to the own voices in my head, but Lord, help me to hear your voice. Help me to always hear from you, to have an understanding, hearing heart, and to understand what you're trying to say. To understand what you're trying to tell me how to handle this situation or what to do in that scenario. That I would have a hearing heart where your will was written clearly on the fleshly tablet of my heart and I hear your voice leading me what to do and what not to do. And he says, because I need to know how to discern between good and evil so I can judge and properly care for your people. What a beautiful request. Again, shows you that Solomon's heart and interest at this point, it's not self-serving. God says, ask, what shall I give to you? And he doesn't ask really anything for his own personal benefit. In love for God first and his people second, those are his two motives here. He says, God, give me an understanding hearing heart because God, I love you and I want to do what's pleasing to you as you've assigned this to me as your servant. I want to please you and do well as your servant here, as your chosen servant. And he says, and Lord, the people... I love these people and I want to do what's in the best interest of them to take care of them. What a beautiful thing to have a love for God and a love for people be what dictates and what directs your greatest concern in your life. That if you could ask for something, you would ask for what pleases God most and what profits other people the most rather than what would be of your own best interest. I mean, this is an amazing attitude that he has. And because he asked this, notice verse 10, because that's what he asked. It says, the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Again, God was pleased because he showed honor for God and he showed love for people. And God's always pleased when we show desire to honor him and a desire to want to serve and love people above all else. That's pleasing to the Lord because it's not self-serving. Verse 11, and then God said to him, look at this, because you've asked this thing and have not asked, probably for what people typically ask God for, I'm sure this is the kind of prayer he hears most often, long life for yourself, that is what's best for me, nor you've not asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. So he says, amazing Solomon, he says, because you didn't ask for what would be best for your own interests, health, long life, that you would prosper, because you didn't ask for riches, money, you know, more material blessing, uh, because you didn't ask, he says, for your life of your enemies, in other words, success, power, prosperity. You didn't ask for any of these things, but instead for an understanding heart to discern justice and care for my people. Behold, verse 12, I have done according to your words. In other words, that's granted. Your prayer is answered because it was in accordance with my heart and will. But see, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you nor shall any like you arise after you in a unique way solomon would have supernatural wisdom and understanding beyond anyone who uh, would ever reign as a king in that way and i verse 13 here's the great part have also given you what you've not asked both riches and honor so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and commandments and your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So he says, Solomon, not only am I so pleased, I'm going to give you exactly what you did ask. I'm so pleased with your heart attitude. I'm actually going to bless you with all the stuff you could have asked for. I'm going to endow you with wealth 
and I'm going to endow you with a long life and success and prosperity. And that's exactly what does unfold in, in Solomon's uh, experience as a man and his reign as a king. And again, so beautiful. God's pleased at times not only with what we do ask in prayer, but sometimes God's also pleased with what we don't ask for in prayer. And what a wonderful thing to be able to have a hard attitude where God can look upon and say, wow, that kind of prayer. I, oh, I so delight to answer that kind of prayer. And then to think on top of that, that because God's gracious, which means he gives us what we don't even deserve, that sometimes God's so gracious, he says, and the thing that you didn't even ask for, you could have asked for it, but because you didn't ask, but your heart's in the right place, I'm going to be gracious to you. And I'm going to bless you in this way. I'm going to take care of you or prosper you financially or you know, you do something to somehow get you ahead or take care of you and, and how God at times blesses us with things we don't even ask for. He does above and beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. It's just power just works through our life and he grants us blessings from just his gracious decision to want to do what's good in our life and how wonderful that God is treating us in so many times that way. And here so he says, Solomon, however, what I do ask of you is that you walk in my ways and keep my statutes. And unfortunately, Solomon is not going to ultimately do that long term. Here, God is being very gracious to him. You would think it would compel him to live upright before the Lord. But sadly, one of the downsides to wealth and to success and to prosperity is sometimes that kind of stuff can become a real nemesis in someone's life and can really begin to corrupt a person. Solomon ultimately is going to be the wisest fool who ever lived. I mean, this guy has wisdom beyond belief, but he makes ultimately some of the most foolish personal decisions because his heart did not remain inclined towards the Lord. And again, you know, the, the heart is the, always the heart of the matter, and that's the unfortunate thing. Well, verse 15 says, Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Notice, that's where the Ark was. Though the tabernacle was in Gibeon, it seems there was two places. Now he comes back to Jerusalem, there at the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and he offered up more burnt offerings. And this time he offered as well peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. So he's celebrating God's spoken to him. He's had this incredible experience with God. He had this incredible mountaintop worship experience, like being on a great retreat, you know, all this worship going on, thousand offerings. Then God reveals himself in a dream, speaks to him. He has this incredible encounter personally with God. He comes back and he's compelled to worship more and celebrate. He's probably sharing some of these things that happened. And now verse 16 gives us an example of this incredible wisdom that God gave to him in his life. Here we see one example of how this was exercised. Many of us have heard this story before. It says, now two women who were harlots, so take notice of that, they were harlots, these women, prostitutes, came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, oh my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house. And I gave birth while she was in the house. And then it happened the third day or three days afterwards after I had given birth, then she also gave birth. And we were together and no one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. She rolled over and smothered her child in the midst of the night. So she arose in the middle of the night and then took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him, again, any mom knows her baby, whether we can tell or not, they, they know. And she says, when I examined him in the morning, indeed, this was not my son whom I had born, three days old or not. She knew her child. Then the other woman chimed in to Solomon, the king on the throne, and said, no, 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 that's not true. But the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And then the first one argued back, no, but the dead one is your son and the living one is my son. And thus they spoke before the king. So this very unusual event takes place. These two harlots, the Bible tells us, come in before the throne where King Solomon's sitting at with a dispute that needs to be solved. 
Notice, first of all, this shows you that Solomon was quite a gracious and humble king because he's entertaining a dispute between two prostitutes who can't solve their problem. So they come in and they start telling this story. Hey, we, we both live together in the house. Again, probably a part of their harlotry and business of prostitution. No one else is there. So there are no other witnesses. It's where we live. Men come in and out. They're both pregnant. And within a three-day time frame, they both deliver a baby within three days of one another. And she says, I had my baby. Three days later, she had her baby. And no one lives in the house with us. So there's nobody to give eyewitness testimony. There's no DNA testing in this day. Oh, well, let's just do a DNA test and find out whose baby is whose. And she says, in the middle of the night, she rolled over and smothered her child in bed with her when she was maybe nursing the baby. And then, sneaky as she is, can you believe it? She then took my baby while I was sleeping and swapped out her dead child for my living child. I woke up in the morning and I went to nurse my child and I realized, wait, this, this isn't my child here. And, and, and so she comes in and she tells, she, she killed her own child and then she stole my child. And then the other one, no, 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 that's not how the story went. She actually made that, that's actually what happened on my end. And so then they're going back and forth, same story, but one saying, I'm the mother of the living child. She's the mother of the dead child. The other harlot is saying, no, 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 that's not true. The living child is my child. It's her child that's dead. And they're going back and forth sharing this dispute. Now, how do you solve that? No DNA testing. There are no witnesses in the house. And the two people you're talking to aren't exactly the most credible up-and-coming citizens. They're harlots. They're prostitutes. So how do you sort that out? How do you know who's lying, who's telling the truth here? This awkward, difficult situation. Well, verse 23, we see how God's wisdom was given to Solomon and watch how God's wisdom operates in this situation. It looks like an impossible situation, but a word of wisdom flows into the heart of Solomon at this point. And the king said, the one says, this is my son who lives and your son is the dead one. The other says, no, but your son is the dead one and my son is the living one. And then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. And then the king said, divide the living child in two, give half to one and half to the other. So, Solomon listens to the story. Everyone else is probably thinking, there's no way. This, this dispute's never going to be solved. There, this is impossible. It's an impossible situation. And sometimes that's how situations look. This is just impossible. There's no answer to this. There's no solution to this problem. There's no way that this is ever going to be resolved or figured. It's just too complicated. There's not enough evidence or information. There's just no way possible this is ever going to be solved. And I love this. The king upon the throne, the first thing he says is, bring out the sword. Now, granted, this is a literal sword, but the Bible tells us that the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword able to divide between soul and spirit to judge the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That this is the sword of the spirit. And I'll tell you something, one of the best ways to begin, especially when there's a complex situation or a complicated situation that's going on, to try and divide and get to the, to the truth of the issue, the answer is to bring out the sword of the spirit to get into God's word and let the truth of God's word become involved in the situation. And it is amazing how many times that God's word can just cut a straight line through nonsense. And that which is lying becomes exposed. Hey, you're believing a lie. You're living a lie. You're, you're trusting. And, and the truth comes forth and revelation comes forth. And God's word, like a sword, is able to just divide at times and give such clarity. But Solomon here says, bring a sword. And he commands to one of his servants, bring a sword, and then he says, divide the living child, the baby, into give half of the dead corpse to one mom, give half to the other mom. There's equality, send them home. At that moment, I'm sure everybody's face, oh my, oh my, but Solomon knew, because God gave him wisdom, that this was going to bring a resolution. 
So he says, cut the baby in half, give half to you, half to you, since you both say it's your baby. But verse 26 says, the woman whose son was living, in other words, the real mother, the one who was telling the truth, the real parent of the living child, he knew that the mother's love for her living child would rise to the surface and that would become evident because of the depths of parental love and giving birth to a child. So it says, the woman whose son was living, the real mom, spoke up to the king for she yearned with compassion for her son and she said, oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other, the one who wasn't the real mom, said, let him neither be mine nor yours, but divide him. She just said, here, you can have the child. She says, no, 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 I don't want the child. Cut him in half. I just want my half. I came here for what's fit. And right away, as that comes to pass, it says, the king answered and said, give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is his mother. So Solomon knew right away when he made this statement that the love of a mother, the sacrificial love of a mother, would love more the child than even loving herself, being willing to go through personal pain and loss and suffering. She was willing, as the genuine real mother in the situation who gave birth to that child, to even think about it, give up her child for the rest of her life. She was willing to spare her child. I said, you know what? Whatever's in the best interest of my child, I will suffer with the pain of not being able to have my child in my life, maybe never see the child, give her the child. And again, she's offering to give her living child to A, a woman who's a liar, to a woman who basically has, in a sense, killed her own child and, and has stolen her child away from her in the middle. I mean, this is a crooked woman she's wanting to give her child to. But that yearning, compassion, and love of a mother rose to the surface and said, whatever it costs me, I don't care. I'll bear the personal cost because my love is supreme. Spare the child. And Solomon knew right away, that's the mom. That's the mom. Because she cares more about the child than she does about herself. That sacrificial love, that love that God has really, that rose to the surface within. This incredible wisdom and discernment to recognize and flush out who the real mother was. Because the other woman, notice, who it was not her child she was willing to let there be division for her own self-interest to be served. And let me just say something. Sometimes you can really tell who genuine individuals are because those who are genuine, those whose heart are in the right place, are willing to give up and sacrifice lest there be division and hurt and harm. And those perhaps who aren't the ones who have given birth to something and really care about something, they are willing to create division just to get what they want. And so somebody that really doesn't have a genuine heart and a genuine love for, for people or situation, or maybe not the genuine one who really gave birth, those are the type of individuals that they say, you know what, I don't care, cause division. Create division. As long as I get what I want, division is fine. Let division happen. So what if people are hurt, hurt, you know, killed, bloodshed? Hey, let division happen. I want what I want. Where the person who's the genuine one who cares is the one who says, I will suffer, I will sacrifice. Don't let there be division. Don't let, don't let there be suffering caused by division. And again, this beautiful imagery here of this sacrificial love demonstrated. And verse 28 says, And all of Israel heard, of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was with him. Notice, it wasn't his wisdom, it was the wisdom of God that was with him to administer justice. How wonderful, the wisdom of God. Th that as human beings, we don't have to 100% rely upon our own wisdom, that there is wisdom from God, a God who is all-knowing and all-wise and who has seen every situation and circumstance you know we face things in this life i know myself and we face man this is really hard or this is really challenging I, i've never dealt with this before and we think oh this is difficult complicated how do you figure it out and the reality is is god is in heaven and here's the thing he's really experienced he's never seen your problem and at any time and gone now that that one's never happened before in humanity 
that's, that's never where God's at. We're facing something to us. It's complicated, maybe impossible, difficult, and we can't, man, I don't know how to, and, and, we, and God's going, listen, do you know how many people I've taken through that very same situation throughout human history from Adam and Eve? And God has incredible wisdom because he's an all-knowing God. He knows the end from the beginning in every situation. He understands all the details and how wonderful that we can go to God, James 1 says, and ask God for wisdom and that God gives his wisdom, that there is a wisdom of God, not a human wisdom, not our natural ability to reason things out, think things through, but there is a supernatural wisdom from God like it was given to Solomon that can be given to us. And here, the wisdom of God was given to him to administer justice. And James 1 says we can ask for that same wisdom. Well, let's look a little bit at chapter 4 before we close. It says, so King Solomon was king over all Israel. Now, keep in mind, he will be the last king that is king over all Israel because the next king will create the divided nation of north and south. And these were his officials, that is, those who were his cabinet members, we might say, just like a, you know, a, a government nowadays, whether in the U.S. or other places, they have officials, cabinet members, whether like ministers of this department or secretaries of particular divisions of the government. This is the same idea existed even in that day. These were his officials, Azariah, the son of Zadok, the priest, uh, Eliareph, and Ahijah, the sons of Shisha, these were scribes. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. That is, he documented things, kept records of you know, business transactions and what took place, government proceedings. Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the army. We've seen him many times before, sort of the secretary of defense or sort of the department of, of the military head there. Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers. He had a realm of oversight over some of the different officers. And then Zabud, the son of Nathan, a priest, notice, and also the Bible tells us the king's friend. I think that's interesting. This guy didn't just have a position. He also had a relationship with the king and, and was a friend to Solomon. The Bible takes note of that. He wasn't just a, a co-laborer. He was also somebody who was a personal friend to the king. And Ahishur was over the household, and Adorinam, the son of Abda, over the labor force. So this was the secretary of labor. And Solomon, notice, had 12 governors over all Israel who provided food for the king and for his household. Each one made provision for one month of the year. So notice, the land broken up. Now, this isn't the same regions as the 12 tribes, uh, geographically, but nonetheless, 12 in the Bible is always the number of governments. We see that throughout the scripture. It's that symbolic representation of, of government. And Solomon here designates some of his responsibility to provide oversight to 12 different governors. And each governor was responsible, it says, for one month out of the year in his territory to gather taxes through food and through harvest that came in and these kind of things. And, and they were responsible one month out of the year of the 12 months. Each governor was responsible for one month to supply what was necessary for the king uh, and for that which was serving together there in Jerusalem together with him. Again, government's a very expensive thing. That's never changed. So, uh, But here we see this distributing of power and really, again, he's, he's delegating here. He delegates 12 different governors to different regions, and each governor has responsibility for one month out of the year. His job is to turn in what's necessary for provision for the king and for all of his household. And verse 8 then begins to give us the names and some of the areas of these different individuals, and I will not torture you with that, down through verse 19. It tells us their names and their territories. Again, if you're having trouble sleeping, you can pronounce your phonetic uh, skills tonight if you want to try that. Verse 20 says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So a time of prosperity under Solomon's reign, great prosperity. So Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river 
to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt all the way down in the south. So uh, the great territory of expansion. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Uh, it says verse 22, now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, that would be like the prime rib, 20 oxen from the pastures on top of that, so there's commercial grade, you know, high quality organic uh, oxen added into that, and 100 sheep, besides, the Bible just gives us a summary now, deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. So no lack of protein, this guy liked meat and uh, had every form of prime cut of beef and deer and gazelles and oxen. I mean, I mean, you look at that food there, you know, some people compute with the uh, amounts that are described there. That is apparently enough food to feed anywhere approximately between about 15 to 25,000 people. This was his provision each day. You were talking about prosperity. This guy was eating good. Uh, he sure was. I mean, we had a good diet too. Maybe God gave him wisdom on that. <laughs> but I mean, just an incredible amount of wealth. The Bible's portraying his prosperity for us. Verse 24 says he had dominion over all the region on the side of the river from Tipsa even to Gaza, namely over all the kings of the side of the river. And notice he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Again, Dan to Beersheba, pictures north to south. And what the Bible's doing here is portraying that under Solomon's reign, unlike David's reign, it was a reign of peace and prosperity safety as Solomon reigned over all the land, every man dwelling safely under his vine and fig tree. That's a picture, a metaphor even used when you get to the prophetic books, the minor prophets, of what circumstances will be like in the days of the kingdom age. That same metaphor is used, dwelling under a vine and fig tree. It pictures rest and prosperity and ease. And again, because the king is upon his throne and Solomon's reign during his great prosperity and the peace it brought and the wealth and all those things is a picture in many ways, symbolically of the kingdom age and the reign of Christ. In the same way that David's reign was a picture of Jesus in many ways in his first coming, the humility, the sacrifice, the bloodshed, the wars to accomplish what was necessary that pictures Jesus in his first coming, coming humbly as a man, sacrificing, dying, shedding his blood, winning the war against sin and evil. But yet Jesus, like Solomon's reign, is coming again a second time. And he's going to set up his throne in Jerusalem and he's going to rule and reign. And there's going to be peace and tranquility and a resolution of problems in a time of great prosperity for those who live under his reign as Jesus comes a second time. And I say to that, Maranatha, come quickly, Amen. Lord Jesus, because we get to participate in that. Let's stand together. We'll close there.